Welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journeys. Creating a sustainable business model doesn't mean being a business. If you have sustainable fundraising, money that can come in year after year after year, then that is also sustainable. What I'm looking at are people who put the social impact they want to create as being more important than the financial return they're expecting. The challenges are obviously to make it work and it's harder and takes longer than most people think. So some of the projects I've been supporting have been absolutely brilliant at fundraising, but I feel that they would do better if they had less money and if they concentrated more on developing their business. I'm very pleased today to introduce Michael Norton. Michael's had a prolific career in the world of social change. In 1975, Michael set up the Directory of Social Change, the UK's leading provider of information and training to the non-profit sector at the time. 20 years later, he set up the Centre for Innovation and Voluntary Action to develop innovative projects worldwide. In 2000, he co-founded Unlimited, which supports social entrepreneurs, and 11 years later, co-founded the International Centre for Social Franchising. He's also co-founder of BuzzBank, an internet platform to enable the crowdfunding of social ventures. But thank you very much, Michael, for agreeing to talk to us for this podcast today. My pleasure. Well, you've had a varied and extensive career in different fields, been at social innovation for many decades. Can you maybe talk a little bit about how it all began? Everything for everyone begins with what I call a trigger point, where you spark something uh, through meeting someone or an idea or fact or an experience of some sort. And um, my trigger point was actually when I was... uh, leaving university, my father asked me if I would volunteer. I didn't really know what he was talking about, but it's easier to say yes than say no. So I ended up going to a youth club for two years on Monday nights, working with groups of young people aged about 12 to 15, um, helping them see the world a bit differently. So one of the projects I did was a visiting program where young people visited older people in their homes. And one day, uh, two 14-year-old girls came up to me with a very broad smile on their face. And I asked them why they were smiling. And they said, well, we've just taken the old lady out for a walk. And I said, well, what's so special about that? And they said, well, you see, she hadn't been out of her flat for three years. So I said, what did you do? Uh, well, they uh, got a wheelbarrow, they filled it with cushions, they carried her down the stairs, they put her in the wheelbarrow, wheeled her to the shops, she did some shopping, wheeled her back to her flat and had tea with her. And what was interesting was that this old lady probably had a whole army of carers, of social workers and medical health workers coming to visit her. And nobody had ever thought about asking her if she wanted to go out. And nobody had ever found a way of getting her out of her flat, which was on the second floor. But these two young girls had done that. And this is sort of an inspirational story because it's all about social innovation and social enterprise. It's about people seeing a problem, finding a solution. So that led to creating my first project, which was 
a very simple project teaching English to immigrant uh, children and families in London in the 1960s. Uh, and eventually I had a volunteer program with around 250 volunteers uh, at what's now called a supplementary school open five days a week with weekend sports activities based at Toynbee Hall in London, all run with, no, with volunteers. Uh, the interesting thing too is we had no name, no money, no bank account, no organisation. It was just something we just did and we collaborated to do. Um, so th those were sort of starting points. And um, I was a banker and a publisher. And I thought, well, uh, I would like to do a bit more with my life. And I s then decided that I would set up something which was called Directory of Social Change to provide information and training uh, to people in the charity sector using the skills I'd gained in publishing in communication and in banking in finance. Uh, and I ended up sort of uh, teaching and fundraising, uh, having an organization that ran a thousand training courses a year, uh, having a, a million pound publishing operation, publishing grant directories and other stuff. And it was actually a social enterprise before we even thought of the term, because in, instead of raising money, we earned all the money we needed. Um, and then uh, in about the year 2000, I uh, no, I, I, I decided to change ship, as it were, in 1995, after 20 years, and concentrate more on ideas and turning ideas into projects. And then in the year 2000, I had the good fortune to bring together a group of people and apply for a hundred million pounds from the lottery to set up Unlimited. So for the last 20 years or so, I've been working in the field of social innovation, encouraging people to take ideas and make them happen, helping, helping them do that, uh, taking my ideas and making them happen, and increasingly, when I have an idea, I try to find someone who will be inspired by the idea, who will lead the idea. So I will do less work and they'll do more work, and I'll help them do it. And then setting up uh, organizations which help people do this, both in the UK and overseas. So that's really what I do. Well, that sounds very interesting. I guess back in those days, in the earliest days, it certainly wasn't called social entrepreneurship or social enterprise. What was the lay of the land with respect to these kinds of projects back when you started? There was a lot of money available for charities. Foundations were wanting to uh, put money into innovation. Government was. Uh, the Home Office had its urban fund, which was a great catalyst for new ideas. Um, so we, we didn't actually have to think about social enterprise, but um, you know I, I believe that the best way of working is independently, not dependent on uh, asking for grants, which is like a child going to parents and asking for pocket money for doing things. You need someone's permission to do it. I prefer to have my own resources and do things by myself at my own pace and when I want to do them. Uh, so I instinctively sort of gravitated towards the idea of social enterprise. Um, but I think that the, the gap between what we now call social enterprise and charity is actually, it's a spectrum rather than a gap. And what I'm looking at these days is people being more enterprising in how they address social problems. Uh, and this ranges from 
doing as a non-profit uh, through to a business and everything in between. And I think the definitions we have are probably not very useful. Uh, we tend to think social enterprise is a wonderful thing because it's called social enterprise. What's wonderful is if you make something work and you do it well and you create social impact. And you can do that in any framework you want. And it's more important what you do with 95% of your resources than, let's say, if you're a, a profit-making company, the 5% you're giving away to your shareholders. So I'm not a neutral format that we adopt for social enterprise. And I'm rather strong on the idea that we need to examine the social impact we create and try to do better in creating more impact uh, and not just rely on the fact that if we call ourselves a social enterprise, we must be good. That's an interesting observation. And as you say, the flexibility of, uh, I guess, an organization of social change being sustainable in a sense, you know, having their own ability to generate cash flow and being having that extra independence. It's a very broad church and many hybrid forms out there where, where organizations will get funding from different sources and maybe even have different parts of the organization working in a for-profit or a non-profit. And, and ultimately, what matters, as you say, is the impact and you know, whether it succeeds or not. I'm just wondering what impact you think generally, the, what kinds of problems get looked at, get focused on when you start to look at for-profit and what impact that has on the kinds of projects that are taken on generally, because clearly there are a many, many worthy projects that just are never going to be profitable or very challenging even to achieve revenues. Creating a sustainable business model doesn't mean being a business. Uh, you can have a, a bunch of supporters who support you regularly and generously as your sustainable business model. Uh, and, um, you know, so if, if you have sustainable fundraising, money that can come in year after year after year, uh, then that is also sustainable. Uh, and what I'm looking at is, are people who put the social impact they want to create as being more important than the financial return they're expecting. Um, and I work with people who want to create no financial return at all, right through to a commercial financial return. But what I'm interested in is working with those people who look at, are looking at social impact as the primary motivation for what they're doing. And after that, I don't really care how they're constituted and whether they, they distribute profit. There, there are a number of things. One is creating a sustainable business model is a key challenge for any venture that's starting out, whether, whether it's from the non-profit side or the for-profit side. Uh, it only makes sense if, it is, uh, it, if, if, it, if it's sustainable and also, if it's sustainable, it becomes scalable. You can spread it if it's successful, so it works not just here, but everywhere else as well. What have you learned about building sustainable business models? What is the art of doing it, and what are some of the challenges? The art is to be flexible and come up with a solution that's right for you. The challenges are obviously to make it work, and it's harder and takes longer than most people think. I think one danger is that you get too good at fundraising. So some of the projects I've been supporting have been absolutely brilliant at fundraising. They raise a ton of money, but I feel that they would do better if they had less money and if they concentrated more on developing their business.
on it's sometimes it's too easy to fundraise for a good project and if you if it's easy to ask for money and get it that may be easier than earning it it destroys the enterprise side of it and makes it harder anyway how would you characterize the landscape then for raising funds for social innovation in the UK? What are a couple of the developments that you look on positively and you know, how do you see it developing? We have a very well-established philanthropic sector uh, which gives money away and um, they, they don't want the money back. So in a sense, uh, this is like lending money with a 100% guaranteed loss of your money. Uh, and at the other end, you've got people who are becoming social investors, uh, or they say they are, and they want a return back for their money, and they want to minimize the risk so that they maximize the chance of getting their money back. Um, and then beyond that, you've got equity investment. Uh, and equity is less available in the social sector because most organizations are not set up uh, to, to issue equity. I mean, there are community interest companies now with, with shares which can do that. And so what we've got actually is a gap in the middle. We've got pure philanthropy and we've got investment where people want a return. Um, and the gap in the middle is really interesting because it includes early stage ventures uh, which are not ready for investment. So you go to invest and they say, you're not investment ready. We can't invest in you yet. Come back later. It includes people who are too small because most social investment only works with large numbers, like £100,000 upwards. And it includes only people who can guarantee a return. So social investment is gravitating in a way towards larger sums of money invested in either asset-backed uh, uh, sort of investments like for the purchase of a property or piece of equipment which will generate income or against future contracts. So we, we have organisations like Charity Bank, Big Issue Invest, Triodos, uh, who have got money available, but it, it's not available to uh, what I call the pipeline of innovation, which is going to feed future social investment markets. So there's a gap that we've got which needs filling because we've got, uh, it's quite easy to get money for startup. It's quite easy to get a 3 0 philanthropic grant. It's quite easy to get money when you're investment ready. In fact, there's more money chasing fewer projects at that stage. Um, but in the middle, we've got what some people call a black hole or a, a valley of death, which is really hard between say, year two, and investment readiness to get money. And uh, my view is that we need an intervention somewhere between philanthropy and commercial investment, uh, which provides flexible money, which is prepared to contemplate risk, and which operates somewhere between the 100% loss that philanthropy in, is involved with and the 100% and the security that investment is. That uh, touches on points that a number of uh, social entrepreneurs I've spoken to talk about, you know, the challenges of, of raising money in and around that phase, I guess, of growth and development. Is there more that the foundations can do? You talked about this, you know, idea of 100% loss, as it were. How well invested are they in social 
enterprise and social entrepreneurs who are, you know, looking for growth as against more of the kind of classic style NGO. You hear people talking about, you know, being very donor driven or how, you know, trying to satisfy the donor above and beyond the the needs of the, you know, who they're, they're trying to work with. And there seems to be some kind of questions there. I can answer this in several ways. The first is there's a movement now called trust-based uh, philanthropy, where instead of investing in a project for, say, three years, um, you invest in a person and an idea and base the relationship on trust and collaboration uh, and working together to make it work over perhaps a longer period sometimes. Um, and there was a, a meeting in Oxford of some of the leading philanthropic investors, including the big foundations and the lottery, to talk about this. And that there's a real interest in moving away from the three-year project-based grant. M many organizations, I mean, I'm working in the, the food and farming sector a bit, and the Esme Fairburn Foundation and the lottery, both between them probably made 1,000 grants for three years to start up projects doing interesting things in food and farming, both agricultural and social, both urban and rural and, and peri-urban. Uh, and then they forget about it. You know, they've made their grant, the grant's out of their books, three years you've had it, you, you're on your way, do it yourself. And then it gets hard because um, you either have to be a brilliant fundraiser or have a, a sustainable fundraising mechanism in place, but most of them haven't done that by then. So the idea of investing over a longer term to make things work, of building on that initial philanthropic investment, maybe blended social and philanthropic investment uh, to move forward, and getting it to a point where it is able to, um, uh, uh, to get uh, towards a sustainable, scalable uh, place uh, so that it, it will thrive and develop. Uh, that's a challenge. Now, one of the problems with foundations is that the social investment comes out of capital and the uh, philanthropic in investment comes out of income. And these two are usually managed completely separately by the foundation with completely separate uh, financial objectives. Um, and for the financial investment, uh, you're not prepared to contemplate risk and you need to get a return. And it makes it quite hard. So foundations that have been setting up social investment funds have been finding it quite difficult because this space in the middle that I've described uh, isn't suited to either their philanthropy or their or, or their investment uh, policy. So one, one approach has been to blend it to link the investment with grants as well, uh, and so they're looking at that. Um, Another possibility is that to set up a different sort of fund. So my organization has been lucky enough to receive a donation, substantial donation. And we're going to set up our own social investment fund to try and do things a bit differently. Uh, and if we lose money on it, we're not too worried. But we, we don't want to lose money, but we're prepared to. So we're going to take more risk, give smaller amounts of investment, have easier processes. Um, and to work on this trust-based approach, working with people and ideas, and decide, do, and make it work. And I'm hoping that we'll be able to get some foundation money into what we're doing. And indeed, 
one large foundation today is considering at their trustees meeting whether to support us uh, with, I don't know whether, whether it's with a grant or an investment. So I think that there's room for a lot of innovation in in the sort of financing social change and financing social innovation, um, and that the foundations will have a role to play, and probably they're in a better place to play a role than the social investment market is, because if you're, for example, Big Issue Invest or one of the other ones, like social investment business, you've got money from banks and other sources like big society capital, and you have to pay it back. So their, their appetite for risk is quite low. Yes, that, that sounds very interesting, what you say there. And I spoke to Rod Schwartz from Clearly Social, just talking about how much of the impact investment, when you take away that proportion that is asset-backed, and if you take away that proportion that's looking for risk-adjusted returns, how much is actually left for these kind of more innovative organizations where, you know, it won't be a market-based return. It might be slightly less than that. But as you say, not about making a loss, but recognizing that, you know, there might be, you know, some kind of capital loss over the period. I went to a pitching event, at clearly so, the other day, of education projects. A lot of really interesting ideas, but they're, they're not really ready for, for investment. They're ready for speculation. I love the idea, I love the person, I get to put my money behind them. But I can't treat that as an investment decision because it is uh, far too early on. Uh, and for many of them, and this is one of the big problems in social innovation, uh, they come up with a really great idea, but they haven't yet developed a market for that idea. And it's a cha- always a challenge to, to create a market. It's easy to sell your idea and your inspiration but actually creating a market for it so it becomes a sustainable business is much harder. Um, and I can give an example. I don't know if uh, this is breaching any confidence or not, but there was a, a really interesting project pitched at Clearly So, which was uh, to create a safe space against cyberbullying, including creating a new type of Facebook where entry into it was, uh, was, was determined by the school you went to. So you could be sure that the people were your age and had been vetted and weren't grooming you uh, as unknown trolls on the internet. So they presented their case and uh, they showed a revenue growth, which was interesting. A lot of their revenue was selling their system in bulk to either schools or educational authorities or groups of schools. But if you looked at the usage by young people of the the social network that was being created was very, very, very low. So they hadn't yet, if their market is young people using it rather than schools buying it, and if schools buy it, they're not going to buy it if young people don't use it sufficiently. Um, They'll buy it for a year or two and then they'll stop. But the challenge for this organization is to try and create a market through the young people using it. And it is not easy. No, that's interesting what you say. And talking to social entrepreneurs, many have discussed the challenges of getting the initial pilot scheme of, I guess, proof of concept of showing exactly this, you know, that there is a market and getting funding prior to that is very challenging. But being able to show exactly, you know, what's there, what the interest is, very, very challenging part of the process where I I think uh, many social innovators struggle. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's three big issues with social innovation. One is 
is there a market? Where is it? How do you get to it? How do you create it? The second is, uh, can you develop a sustainable business model? So if you've got a market, uh, can you use that market to create something that is sustainable? Um, and, and the third thing is social impact. Uh, are you creating social impact and could you create more social impact? Uh, and I think this is a, actually really interesting. And I'll, I'll just give you an example. I'm working in China quite a lot. And one of the social enterprises I'm working with is one of the, the prize-winning social enterprises in the world. It employs 5,000 disabled people writing software. And it is the first social enterprise in Shenzhen in China to get listed on the Shenzhen Stock Exchange, where it has had two public offerings. Um, so obviously it's doing good business and it's, it's successful and it's employing 5,000 disabled people. But the purpose of it is not to create a business employing people, but it is to change people's lives. So obviously the more people it employs, the better. And there are two ways of employing more people. One is uh, to grow the business and one is to have a faster turnover of the people you employ. So you employ them and then they get jobs in the IT industry. And as disabled people with a job in the IT industry, they'll be creating even more social impact because they'll be changing it, the attitudes of their, their, their co-workers in the offices where they're working. So I asked a very simple question. What is your rate of staff turnover? And it was 10%. So on average, a person stayed 10 years in the business. Um, so I said, if you got it to 20%, you double your social impact. Uh, and not just uh, getting staff turnover for the sake of it, but making sure those staff got proper jobs in the outside world. And I thought perhaps the best level of staff turnover is maybe one third per annum. Uh, so that you, and that would be what you would aim at. And the interesting thing is that if you see this as a social enterprise, one measure of your social impact is staff turnover to increase it. If it were just purely a business, one measure is staff turnover to reduce it. Um, and so, I mean, it's, it's quite interesting when you start looking at social impact, the, the really interesting ways in which any organization and indeed any successful organization can enhance the impact that it's trying to make. And my belief is that if it's a social enterprise, by doing this, it will become a more successful enterprise as well as a more successful social enterprise. Impact is clearly getting increasing attention and much needed attention, I think, in terms of getting some granularity and measures and understanding about impact. I suppose there's also a danger that when you compare measuring impact with things like profit or turnover and things like that, which are you know pretty clear to distill down some measures, it can be very challenging. And, and, and there is a danger, I guess, of looking for convoluted ways of measures of, of impact. There are two problems. One is that people often do it for the wrong reason. And they do it because their donors or investors require it or because they have to put it into a business plan. Um, and uh, what I believe is that you do it for yourself as a way of managing your business, um, and you're honest about it because you want to learn from it and do better through it. Um, so 
the idea is to uh, is to uh, decide to do it, to decide what it is you're going to measure, to measure it, and then to manage the process so you enhance your social impact and to build that into the way you manage the organisation. And I'd like to see social impact uh, on uh, trustee and board meetings in the same way that quarterly annual reports, sorry, quarterly financial reports are on the agenda that uh, trustees look at the finances and manage the finances. And I believe they should be managing the social impact in the same way. And the second issue is that uh, it's becoming an area where experts are coming in and saying, if you pay us £10,000 consultancy, we'll work it all out for you. And my view is that we need to create very simple social measures uh, that can be easily measured, cheaply measured, which uh, tell us what we need to know quickly and cheaply. And for the organization in China, which, by the way, is called CanU, as its English name, um, uh, the measures I developed for them were one uh, rate of staff turnover, and that should be managed properly so that people are getting it's not just staff turnover, but people getting into new proper jobs with good salaries. Secondly, it was uh, you're trying to change people's lives, uh, the disabled people. So as I came up with two measures for them. One is how quickly they moved out from the hostel into independent accommodation. And the second was how quickly they got married and formed families, because I thought that was a good indication of having a secure future. And the third thing was changing public attitudes in society. And I thought that they ought to have a much more structured, managed process of personal development training and public speaking so that every employee becomes a disability activist and goes out and, 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 and helps change attitudes towards disability. You don't need to pay £10,000 to get that. And the measures that you've got are really simply measurable and cost very little to do. So you don't have a big annual burden in measuring. So I, I see social impact as something essentially quite simple, built into the DNA of how you work and how you see things, and not an expert uh, area of knowledge that you hire professionals to help you. You mentioned there the work that you've done on in terms of impact in this organization in China. How well do you think social innovators and social enterprise generally or at learning from other social enterprises that have faced similar issues, questions, and so forth in their development, and can more and should more be done there? Well, in the world I work in, I encourage sharing and collaboration. Uh, and I think we've got a lot to learn from one another. And being protective of what we're doing actually is against our own interests as well, because uh, if you share, you will learn through sharing to and come back and help you. So um, I think that there's, there's a lot to learn, both uh, within a country and internationally. And I think one of the things we've got to learn in the UK is to be more enterprising. I sometimes joke in China that we can teach them to be more social, they can teach us to be more enterprising. Because a, a lot of social enterprise in the UK is a term that's used for people who are operating basically what is a charity and they're raising money or they are using grants, uh, sorry, contracts that they get with local authorities. And this is still the same problem. They're, they're not running a business. 
they're getting the contract and then delivering the service, which is rather the same as getting a grant and then delivering the program. And I, I'm much more interested in those organisations that determine their own agenda and are social businesses rather than, than contract-based enterprises. That's, that's very interesting. And it touches on maybe a final point, um, something you mentioned as a necessary ingredient along the way, scaling. What are your thoughts on scaling? And it's clearly intimately connected with having a sustainable business model. In 1993, uh, I organized a whole series of activities when I was a director of social change on what I call charity franchising. So we had a two-day conference. We had uh, money to do research with six organizations to do feasibility studies with them on how they might uh, become uh, scalable and franchisable. And we produced a handbook and some guidance notes on scaling up. Uh, I then forgot about it for about 20 years. And as in South Africa, where I have a professorship at the business school at the University of Cape Town. And I was asked to give a presentation to the faculty of, of the business school. And I chose as my subject social franchising. Um, and I said at the end of the, uh, the presentation that uh, if I were them, I would go to the local hardware shop. I'd order a label uh, which said International Institute for Social Franchising. I'd pin it on the door of the business school. And I said, if you do this, then everything will happen. The business will come to you. There's a need for it. And like most good ideas that you pitch to people like that, nothing ever happens. <laughs> and then six months later, I met a young man who was on the CLAW leadership program. And as his special subject for research, he was comparing food banks and McDonald's and their, their scaling strategies. So I said to him, why don't we set up an international institute for social franchising? Uh, and within 20 minutes, he'd given up his job uh, to do this. Uh, he was about to have a baby. So the first thing we did was we got some backers to give philanthropically enough money to secure his salary for a year. And we set up what is now called the International Center for Social Franchising. And I was right that uh, there was a need for it and business has come to it and it is prospering and growing and it's got uh, a branch in the USA. This is uh, three, three years on. It's got an affiliate in Australia. It's got affiliate programs in South Africa and Kenya. And I'm doing work alongside it in China. Um, there is a need for this. Um, and I think that if you want to go out and change the world, uh, you... Well, I, I would say, think big, but start small. You've got to make your project work where you are before you can actually think about scaling it. But if you start with the idea you're going to scale it, you'll build into how you operate uh, the structures that you'll need later on for scaling. Um, and the scaling can be by growth, it can be by open source franchising, it can be uh, by uh, business model franchising, licensing, all sorts of techniques are, are usable to get to scale. Um, and another thought I've had recently is that sometimes social enterprises are really good at innovating, but less good at growing and developing for lots of reasons. One is they don't, at the beginning, have the supply chains, the access to finance, the logistics that big business has. 
So I've come to an idea, I call it business for good is good for business, that business could adopt the ideas of social enterprise in their mainstream business and prosper. But equally, they could partner with social enterprises to get things to go to scale. So for example, if you've invented a machine which turns uh, seawater into drinking water, um, there's a huge demand for it. Maybe a billion people a year could benefit. You're a startup. Uh, are you the right person to do the scaling up, or would it be best done with an international business organization that's got huge amounts of assets and resources that can mobilize towards this? Um, and the answer, I think, is, is, is self-evident, that um, the small organizations, on the whole, find it very hard to scale successfully. There are some examples where it has been done really well, but there are many more examples of people struggling. And I think a greater coming together of business and the ideas of social enterprise and social enterprises uh, is really uh, due uh, to happen uh, for the benefit of the world. We've got the Millennium Development Challenges now called the Sustainable Development Challenges. And I think, you know, there are about 160 of them that have to be fulfilled in the next 15 years. I don't think social enterprise on itself has a hope of making much of an impact. But I think social enterprise, the ideas of social enterprise, plus business, could be the way forward. Well, I've been thinking about a very similar idea, <laughs> just realizing that, you know, just the, as you say, the size and the, all of this great innovation and so forth in the social enterprise area. But yet these giant organizations have just so much to. So I, I, I've been thinking exactly about, you know, the, and there is a couple of organizations out there, I think one called Reach to Scale. There are many challenges, I guess, there in terms of, you know, risk and things that large companies, you know, like to work with. You know, they've got due diligence issues and working with very small and risky kind of things. But I think it's a very exciting idea. And I'd love to talk to you about it at some point. But I, I'll maybe just go to a last question. I can't resist. Sorry, we've gone on a little bit, Michael. Just looking forward. I mean, you mentioned this partnership between social enterprise and larger companies. Are there one or two other areas that excite you in terms of the future of social innovation? I've got my plate full for the moment because I've got my work on trying to encourage this sort of intermediary social investment. I've got my work in social franchising and in business for good, being good for business. Uh, and I think there are enough challenges there to work on those for the next uh, few years to make them uh, actually viable ideas because ideas are only good ideas if you make them work um i mean ideas are only good ideas if you start to do something and when you've started to do something you've then got to make them work so uh i, th I think my plate's pretty full the the only other thing i'm doing is that i've i've got an initiative called the asia environmental innovation forum because i think that uh, climate change and the environment are the real key issues for the future of the planet and that we need to bring a lot of this thinking about social enterprise, social investment, social impact uh, into the area of environment and probably to bring together innovators and investors in more creative ways as well. Thank you so much, Michael. It's been a real pleasure and honor to speak to you, to hear this non-stop innovation, new <laughs> ideas, which have all had such an impact on their own. I wish you the very best of success with your latest ideas and projects and continuing social innovation. So thank you very much, Michael. And, and thank you, Fogel.
Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneur podcast. I hope you found this interview inspiring. Please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.